Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 45 of the show, and uh, it's a special episode because it is the one-year anniversary of the Sports Island Podcast. The uh, first episode that I did was published uh, on June 24th of 2020, just a couple months after all the COVID outbreak and sports shutdown and all that. So, man, I, I can't thank you guys enough for continuing to listen to this podcast. And uh, I was just going back and thinking about all the wide range of, of topics that, that I've discussed over this last year and how much sports has changed in this past year. And we're slowly starting to get back to the way things were. But uh, what what a crazy last 12 months it's been. And I'm, I'm glad you guys have been there to support this podcast and I hope you continue to do so but that being said we'll go ahead and uh, jump right into this episode it's another busy one for you uh, we'll start off in the PGA Tour and last weekend was the U.S. Open which was held at Torrey Pines the south course which is in La Jolla, California just outside San Diego it was a par 71 the distance was 7,652 yards and uh, for the first time in a couple of years, the U.S. Open returned to its regular Father's Day weekend spot in the lineup. Of course, last year it had to be played in the fall after the postponement. And uh, Bryson DeChambeau was your your winner last year at Winged Foot in the fall. But um, this year, this was the second time Torrey Pines has hosted the U.S. Open. The other time was back in 2008 when Tiger Woods was your winner. A uh, couple of storylines coming into this one. Of course, you have the uh, feud with Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau, you know, and they both they both were in contention late, and we'll get into that. But uh, Phil Mickelson, PGA Championship winner, uh, this is the only major that he has not won, and he's finished as the runner-up six times in this thing. So he was looking to uh, complete the Grand Slam. And then you had Patrick Reed, who actually won here at Torrey Pines, few months ago at the beginning of the year uh, at the Farmers Insurance Open. So, uh, And then John Rahm returned to the uh, returned to the course after a two-week COVID break. Uh, he actually had, remember, had to sit out the final round of the Memorial Tournament after testing positive uh, in the third round of the tournament. So he was well on his way to winning that. And in the second round of this tournament, Victor Hovland actually had to withdraw from this U.S. Open with an eye injury. Now, he sustained this eye injury in his pre-second round warm-up. He hit a sand shot. Some sand got into his eye, and he never really got it out. He ended up starting his second round, played several holes, and then just withdrew due to his inability to see. Uh, he said it was actually pretty painful, but... 
all in all, it was a very good competitive U.S. Open. Uh, the scores were were kind of, uh, well, we'll just get into it. The winner was John Rahm, six under par. Uh, and it was his first career major championship. His It was the first U.S. Open victory by a Spanish golfer. And Rahm, you know, this was his first event since the Memorial a couple weeks ago where he only played three rounds and had a had a six-shot lead uh, after three rounds and then had to withdraw. He was well on his way to winning that thing. And he came out. He had a solid couple of rounds to start this thing. He was sitting at three under par heading into the weekend. Actually shot a one over 72 in round three, but then closed with a four under 67 on Sunday, which actually featured five birdies and a bogey. So uh, Rahm made two huge birdie putts on 17 and 18 on Sunday to capture his first major championship. And there will certainly be more to come. Uh, that victory actually moved John Rahm up from number two in the world rankings into the number one spot. So as after this U.S. Open, John Rahm is officially the number one ranked golfer in the world, passing Dustin Johnson. Your second place finisher in the U.S. Open was Louis Oosthuizen at five under par, just one shot back of Rahm. And uh, poor Louis, man, he came out hot. He shot a four under 67 on Thursday, followed that up with an even par round of 71 on Friday, went one under on Saturday to sit at five under heading into the final round, actually had the uh, co-54 hole lead, and then shot an even par 71 on Sunday. Uh, he, he bogeyed 17 and birdied 18. That bogey on 17 really killed his chances uh, because 18 was a par five, and the way he was playing, he figured he was probably going to birdie it, but he needed an eagle because of John Rahm's clutch putt on 18. But another second-place finish in a major championship for Louis Oosthuizen, who also finished in second place at the PGA Championship about a month prior. Uh, and uh, just a string of top-five finishes in majors. Now, he, he has won one major uh, back in uh, 2010. He won the British Open, but uh, he's been coming up short ever since. But another good major championship for Oosthuizen. Then we had a four-way tie for uh, fourth place, third place rather. I guess you could call it third. They were all at two under, and it was Harris English, Guido Migliozzi, Brooks Kepka, and Colin Morikawa. All finished at two under par, which was three shots back of Oosthuizen, four shots back of Rahm. So we'll start with Harris English. This was the sneakiest finish out of the top five because he was sitting at uh, even par going into the weekend. Then uh, fired an even par round again on seventy uh, of 71 on Saturday to stay there at even par. And then he shot a three under 68 with seven birdies uh, on, on Sunday. And that's what propelled him up to that number three spot. So he uh, was kind of sneaky, wasn't really competitive up until Sunday. Uh, but the, the next golfer that was at two under par was Guido Migliozzi. And this guy has the best name of any golfer in the tournament by far. It was actually his first career start on the PGA Tour. Uh, he'd been doing really well on the European Tour, had back-to-back second-place finishes on the European Tour before getting the nod here in the U.S. Open, which is actually very similar to Garrick Higo a couple of weeks ago when I 
had him as a pick to click for the Palmetto Championship, and he won that. I just based that on his recent uh, play on the European Tour. So Migliozzi kind of followed that same format, and uh, he was actually sitting at plus one through three rounds, Migliozzi was, but then came out on Sunday with a three under 68, featured five birdies, and that moved him into that top portion of the leaderboard. So uh, a great, surprising PGA Tour debut for Guido Migliozzi, and uh, we'll look for him here this this upcoming weekend at the Travelers. He's going to be playing there as well. But the other two golfers to finish at two under par were Brooks Kepka and Colin Morikawa. Now, Brooks Kepka, this is another major championship and another Brooks Kepka top five finish, okay? Uh, he was actually in contention all tournament. He was sitting at even par heading into the weekend, and uh, he shot a 69 in the opening round, uh, which is two under, and then shot a two over 73 in the second round. Then followed that up with an even par round of 71 on Saturday. So he was at even par... Uh, through three rounds and ended up only shooting a two under 69 on Sunday, which was kind of a disappointment because Kepka was actually three under through his first nine holes on Sunday, which bumped him up into that second place range. And then he had three bogeys over his final seven holes, Kepka did, which was very unbrooks-like on a Sunday in a major, uh, but he just he couldn't recover from that and that dropped him down to that two under score. Now, Colin Morikawa was the final guy to finish at two under par. He got off to an absolutely horrid start. He shot a four over 75 in the opening round, followed that up with a four under 67 in round two. So he, like most of these other guys, was sitting at even par heading into the weekend. And then he shot a pair of one under 70s in each of his weekend rounds to get to that two under. Now, that was very disappointing on Sunday for Morikawa as well because he was in contention late in Sunday's round. He got into that second-place range as well. But Morikawa ended up double-bogeying the par-5 13th hole with a 7. Just absolutely horrible. It's like he forgot how to play golf for one hole, and that just blew his chance at any kind of uh, major you know, U.S. Open. He's a major champion because he won the PGA Championship last fall. But... Uh, he could have added a U.S. Open had he not double bogeyed that par 5 13th. But still another top five finish for one of the world's top ranked golfers. Now let's check out Rick's picks to click from the U.S. Open. My picks to click are all familiar names that we have all just discussed. I picked Louis Oosthuizen, Brooks Kepka, and Colin Morikawa as my three picks to click for the U.S. Open. Okay, Louie, I just talked about it. He finished at 5-under, which was second. Brooks finished, well, Brooks and Colin Morikawa both finished at 2-under par, all right, which was tied for fourth officially, but uh, was the third lowest score. And uh, I would just recap their rounds. Uh, just uh, definite click on all three. You know, I clicked, uh, I had three, all three picks in the top five, so that is definitely a successful weekend in the old Rick's picks to click. But we'll move on to this weekend's tournament, which is the Travelers Championship. That's held at TPC River Highlands, which is in Cromwell, Connecticut. It's a par 70. Distance is 6,841 yards. Now, this is actually the second 
shortest course on the PGA Tour calendar. So this weekend is anybody's game. Uh, This is the 38th year that the PGA Tour has stopped at TPC River Highlands. And this course actually holds the lowest ever recorded round of 58, which was shot by Jim Furyk in the 2016 Travelers Championship fourth round. So that is still to this day the lowest round to par ever in a PGA Tour event. And really the key holes on this course, it's a shorter course, but the key holes are 15, 16, and 17 because those holes play around a four-acre lake. So again, I think this weekend we do have some big names in the field. Some top-ranked golfers are playing in this one. Uh, Kepka, DeChambeau, DJ, uh, you know, a lot, lot of big-name golfers in this field. And um, I, I think really it could be open to anybody's uh, anybody's win, you know, just because of the, the short distance. You don't need a big driver to succeed here at TPC River Highlands. But let's check out Rick's picks to click for the Travelers Championship. The first one I'll give you is Scotty Scheffler. He's ranked number 18 in the world. And Scheffler's been playing really well as of late. In three of his last four starts, he's finished T8 or better, two of which were in major championships. And he led last week's U.S. Open in strokes gained putting and putting birdies or better. So if he continues that good putting on this short course, I think Scheffler's got a really good chance to win this thing. I think he's due for a victory as well. So uh, I just he doesn't really have uh, a history here at TPC River Highlands like my other picks to click do, but I just feel like this is a Scotty Scheffler weekend. My second pick to click is Patrick Cantlay. He's ranked number seven in the world. He's your current FedEx Cup points leader, and he followed up his win at the Memorial a couple weeks ago with a T15 at the U.S. Open last week. And Cantlay is another one of those guys that has played uh, historically really well at uh, TPC River Highlands. In fact, this is the 10-year anniversary that Patrick Cantlay was an amateur player in this Travelers Championship, and he shot a round of 60, which is the lowest ever recorded round for an amateur on PGA Tour history. So, Not only does this course hold the lowest ever round recorded, it holds the lowest amateur round ever recorded, and that was by Patrick Cantlay 10 years ago. But since since his start here, his first start at TPC River Highlands, Cantlay has made three cuts in five events. He's finished uh, finished in the top 15 all three of those times, and all three of those have been since 2018. So he's dominated this course here recently. He's a top-ranked golfer, and uh, give me Patrick Cantlay to certainly finish inside the top 25. Now, my final pick to click for the Travelers Championship is Bryson DeChambeau. He's ranked number six in the world, and he had a chance. He led the U.S. Open late on Sunday, uh, but he stumbled a bit in the the back nine and uh, cost himself a a chance for back-to-back U.S. Opens, but... He's still Bryson DeChambeau, and he still can hit it. And uh, he's had really good success here at the Travelers Championship. He made his debut here at TPC River Highlands back in 2016. 
And since then, he's played five tournaments here. He's made the cut all five times, and he's finished inside the top 10 the last three years in 2018, 2019, and 2020. So three consecutive top 10 finishes here for Bryson and his scoring average uh, over those uh, five uh, events that he's played here is 67.7, which is, uh, you know, uh, three under par roughly. So I like for Bryson DeChambeau to certainly compete uh, for a victory this week, but certainly finish inside that top 25. So it'll be a good weekend. We always have some excitement uh, here at TPC River Highlands. It's a short course, but that should be uh, plenty of good golf being played out there this weekend. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do an update in the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's the conference finals in both sides here. And the first series in the conference finals is the Tampa Bay Lightning versus the New York Islanders. Now, last week's episode, I predicted that Tampa Bay would win this series in seven games. And when we left off last week, we had covered the first two games of this series. So we'll pick it up here in game three. And Game 3 was just a really close game. Uh, Tampa Bay got the scoring started about halfway through the first period, and the Islanders did not answer that goal until about three minutes left in the second period. But the tied game only lasted for about two and a half minutes because with 20 seconds left in the second period, Tampa Bay's goal-scoring machine, Braden Point, found the back of the net to give the Lightning a 2-1 to lead, And then Andre Vasilevsky, the Lightning goalie, just took care of the rest of it. He was a monster yet again. He stopped 27-28 New York Islanders shots. And Tampa Bay was able to hold off the Islanders' comeback and uh, take Game 3 and a 2-1 series lead. But in Game 4, the Islanders came out ready to go. And they jumped out to a 3-0 lead and took that into the third period. But the Lightning got two quick goals about three minutes apart to cut the deficit to one. The Islanders this time would hold off the Lightning in dramatic fashion to get a 3-2 victory to even the series at two games apiece. Now, I say dramatic because with about three and a half seconds left, Tampa Bay Lightning defenseman Ryan McDonough took the puck in from the point. He spun around an Islanders defenseman. Great spin move slid a backhander on net. And now Simeon Varlamov, the Islanders goalie, was out of position on this. And the puck was going in the net. And New York Islanders defenseman Ryan Pollock came sliding over out of nowhere to stop the puck just before it crossed the goal line. So that saved the game for the Islanders. The horn went off as he saved it. So uh, Islanders win. Both teams had 30 shots on net. That was as close of a game as you can get. But after four, this thing was tied at two games apiece. Now, game five, of course, when the series is tied, game five uh, is a huge game. And the Islanders perhaps forgot to show up because the Lightning got three goals in the first three goals in the second, and two more goals in the third period. That is a total of eight goals. And, oh yeah, the Islanders didn't score at all. So uh, Tampa Bay won the game 8 to nothing. Andre Vasilevsky had 21 save shutout. And Braden Point for the Lightning scored in his eighth uh, consecutive game, which uh, is approaching a record. Now, game six... 
of course, this is do or die for the Islanders, right? So they came out, and um, they were ready to roll the Lightning. They also were ready to play, too, because Braden Point, who else, right? He got the scoring started late in the first period. Ninth straight game with a goal. Definitely closing in on a record. And then Braden Point assisted on an Anthony Sorelli goal late in the second to give the Lightning a 2 to nothing lead. But uh, Sorelli's goal was answered just two minutes later by the Islanders. So uh, the Islanders had a 2-1 to deficit, and then with just over halfway through the third period, New York scored to tie the game, and then the game went into overtime from there. And now, just as we've seen in the playoffs so far throughout most of the, the series, uh, quick playoff overtime games, right? So all the overtime games in the playoff have, have been pretty quick. This one was no different. Just a minute and eight seconds into this overtime in Game 6, New York Islanders forward Anthony Beauvillier ripped a shot past Andre Vasilevsky to give the Lightning the victory in Game 6 and force a Game 7. Now, as of this recording, Game 7 would be uh, tomorrow, Friday night, and uh, I predicted the Lightning would win the series in seven games. And uh, somebody's going to win this series in seven games. Uh, Game seven is in Tampa Bay, so uh, I'd give the advantage to the Lightning there, but we'll have to see how that turns out. But the other series in the NHL is the Vegas Golden Knights and the Montreal Canadiens. Now, I predicted that Vegas would win this series in six games. Well, the series was over in six games, but it was not the Vegas Golden Knights who won. It was the Montreal Canadiens. And when we did last week's episode, we had covered the first two games of this series. So we'll pick it up again in Game 3. Well, Game 3 shifted to, of course, the Bell Center in Montreal. Limited fans, not uh, full capacity like Vegas. But that did not mean that Montreal would not disappoint because they came out scoring. Uh, Just over three minutes into the second is when they got the first goal. And that lead lasted 38 seconds, though, um, because Montreal rookie Cole Caulfield found the back of the net to tie the game. The kid's an absolute stud. Uh, so it was one to one. Vegas' Alex Petrangelo uh, gave Vegas the lead back with uh, two and a half minutes, I guess, into the third period. And that lead actually lasted most of the third period. But with just under two minutes left in the third, Montreal's Josh Anderson scored to tie the game. And uh, keep that name in mind, because the game went into overtime, and about 13 minutes into overtime, one of the longer overtime games of the playoffs so far, Montreal had a quick 2-on-0 in which Paul Byron and Josh Anderson both got behind the Vegas defenseman. And Paul Byron made a quick pass over to Josh Anderson, who buried the puck in the back of the net, gave the Habs a 3-2 win, and a 2-1 to series win. So Josh Anderson scored the last two goals of that game. Big win for the Habs. Now, <clears throat> game four, super important for Vegas, right? You can't let, uh, can't win, or let Montreal win both games at home. And uh, the scoring actually in this one, game four, did not start until late in the second period. Montreal's Paul Byron, again, overtime, Partial hero, uh, game three. He found the back of the net to open the scoring in game four, put Montreal up 1-0. And then Vegas didn't score, uh, didn't answer that goal until about halfway through the third period. 
and that's when Braden McNabb tied the game. Pretty goal. But uh, the game ended up going into overtime. Again, common theme here. And uh, just over a minute into overtime, another quick overtime, Vegas's Nick Roy, Nick Wah, lifted the puck up over a sprawling Carey Price, who was diving to his left, and Wah just lifted it up over him. He gave Vegas a 2-1 to lead, or 2-1 to win, in an uh, even series at two games apiece. So game five shifts back to Vegas, packed house, right? All-important game five. You got uh, packed stands in Vegas, and uh, it was all Montreal. Uh, the Habs didn't care about the full stands. They came out firing on all cylinders, and they played fantastic defense. The Habs actually took a 3 nothing lead into the third period before Vegas's Max Pacioretty scored Vegas's only goal about four minutes into the third and that was just simply not enough because Montreal's Nick Suzuki added an empty netter. Montreal won the game 4-1, to took a 3-2 series lead, and headed back home with a chance to clinch in front of their home crowd. Now, with their Game 5 win, Montreal moved to 10-0 and in this postseason when scoring two goals, which is a vast difference from their regular season performance in which they lost 20 games when they scored two goals. So you move on to game six. It was in Montreal at the Bell Center. Do or die for Vegas, right? You win, you you continue the series, you lose, you go home. Well, Montreal came out and struck first. Shea Weber got the Habs on the board. And then just under a minute later, Vegas's Riley Smith even the score at one. And then the teams traded a, a goal and over the rest of the, the game, one goal each. So it was two to two. Game went into overtime, and then just a minute and 39 seconds into overtime. Again, super quick overtime. Minute and 40 seconds into overtime. Montreal forward Arturi Lekkonen, he went down and buried the game winner to send the Habs, kind of a busted play, to send the Habs to the Stanley Cup Finals. So, uh, like I said, I picked Vegas in six. The series went six games, just the wrong winner. So I am in danger of losing both conference finals predictions. But nonetheless, as it sits right now, the uh, New York Islanders and Tampa Bay Lightning are playing a game seven tomorrow night. And the Montreal Canadiens and the Vegas Golden Knights series wrapped up with Montreal winning in six games. So we know one of the participants in the Stanley Cup finals will be the Montreal Canadiens. We will find out the other participant after tomorrow's game and we will break down the Stanley Cup finals on next week's episode again my prediction is Tampa Bay is going to win it will be a Tampa Bay versus Montreal Stanley Cup finals but we'll have to see if that comes to fruition after tomorrow night's game stay tuned on that we'll have a Stanley Cup playoff preview next week uh, on uh, next week's episode along with a breakdown of the first few games of that series But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association and do a playoff update there in the NBA. And we got quite a bit to cover uh, in this one. We got to wrap up a couple second round series. So we'll start there in the Eastern Conference. The Philadelphia 76ers against the Atlanta Hawks. Now, I picked the Sixers to win in six games, and that was not the case. We had covered the first five games in this series on last week's episode, so we'll pick it up in game six. Philadelphia 
of course, had to go into this, uh, had to go into Atlanta facing elimination. And Philadelphia was actually losing at halftime, but they got it together in the second half. They put together a 33-point third quarter en route to a 104-99 win. So this even the series and forced to Game 7. Of course, Joel Embiid, 22 points, 13 rebounds. Seth Curry, big game for Philly, 24 points. And then, of course, Trey Young, 34 points, 12 assists. And if there are any doubts about Trey Young's status in this league coming into the playoffs this year, this kid is a bona fide superstar. Now, Game 7 of that series uh, was a good one. Went back and forth. Uh, it was in Philly, but in the end, Atlanta was able to quiet the home Philly crowd, come out with a 103-96 to victory. Trey Young had 21 points, 10 assists. And Kyle Herter for uh, Atlanta, 27 points. And uh, for Philly, Joel Embiid, 31 points, 11 rebounds. And Tobias Harris, 24 points. And then Ben Flippin' Simmons. Dude only had five points. That's five more points than I had in that game. And he's making a shitload of money to play in that game. And there's been plenty of talk since that game. Uh, Of course, Atlanta won the series in seven games, right, with that win. There's been plenty of talk about Ben Simmons uh, probably playing his last game in Philly. It's probably getting traded. Um, he's not really known for his huge offensive game, but he is quite possibly the biggest waste of an offensive player I've ever seen. Uh, the dude, he'll get he'll get 10 assists in every game, but he might not get 10 points in every game, which he's your starting point guard. You need him to score. So uh, Ben Simmons is absolutely horrible. Just an absolute abysmal contract. He's got like $120 million left on his deal. Uh, good luck trading him, but... Uh, the other series in the Eastern Conference was the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. I would picked Brooklyn to win in six games. This series also went to seven games. We had covered the first five games up through last week's episode, so we'll pick it up in game six, which, of course, Brooklyn was up three games to two. The do or die for Milwaukee, and they were on their home floor. The Nets did not have Kyrie Irving, who was still out with a sprained ankle. And, man, did they miss Kyrie because Milwaukee's big guns came out to play. Uh, Milwaukee grabbed an early lead in the game and never really looked back because they went on to win 104-89, which uh, tied the series at three games, forced to game seven. And the Bucks duo of Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton just absolutely balled out with monster games. Giannis had 30 points, 17 rebounds. Again, just another ho-hum performance for him. Chris Middleton actually had more points. He had 38 points and 10 rebounds. And then Drew Holiday, he chipped in with 21 points. Big effort from him. On the Brooklyn side of things, Kevin Durant, of course, no surprise, 32 points, 11 rebounds. And then James Harden, he played 40 minutes but only managed 16 points, which if the Nets want wanted to win game seven they were you know Kevin Durant was going to need more help from James Hart uh, than 16 points so we fast forward to game seven the Nets were still without Kyrie Irving and uh, which that that proved to be too much to overcome because Kevin Durant hit a late three to send the game into overtime and then overtime the interesting fact about this one 
Overtime only produced a total of eight points between both teams. Six of them were scored by Milwaukee. So that means Milwaukee won the game 115 to 111 to win the series in seven games. Kevin Durant, just a monster performance, 48 points. James Harden for the Nets had 22 points, which is respectable, but uh, they were still missing a big scoring piece in Kyrie Irving. And for Milwaukee, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 40 points, 13 rebounds. Chris Middleton, 23 points, 10 rebounds. So Milwaukee won that series in seven games. So I was incorrect on both of those Eastern Conference picks. Now, if the Nets were 100% healthy and had Kyrie Irving for the the whole series, I still don't think there's any way that Milwaukee beats him, but uh, I guess we'll never know. But in the Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns and the Denver Nuggets, um, we had covered the entirety of that series on last week's episode. I predicted Phoenix would win in seven. They actually swept Denver in four games, so I was right, at least on that prediction. The Utah Jazz and the L.A. Clippers. I predicted that Utah would win in six games, and such was not the case. The series was over in six games, but it was the Clippers who came out on top. And in game six, we had covered the first five games on last week's episode. So game six, the uh, Jazz went into the Staples Center uh, trying to get a win. Uh, Kawhi Leonard was still on the bench with a knee injury for the Clippers, so Utah had a legit chance, and they actually had a 22-point lead at halftime, the Jazz did. But then the Clippers decided to put together 81 points in the second half, which finished off the Jazz by a score of 131-119. to And the hero for the L.A. Clippers was none other than Terrence Mann, who had 39 points, including seven three-pointers. Paul George had 28 points, Reggie Jackson 27 points, 10 assists, just monster games from those guys. And then on the Utah side, Donovan Mitchell ended his season with 39 points, 9 boards, and 9 assists. So he was just shy of a triple-double. But fantastic performance from the Clippers, who again were without their best player, Kawhi Leonard. So uh, if you're recapping at home, I went 1-3. and in my second-round predictions for the NBA. So that sets up the conference finals. In the Western Conference, it's the Phoenix Suns versus the Los Angeles Clippers. In the Eastern Conference, Milwaukee Bucks versus the Atlanta Hawks. Now for the Western Conference, I'm going to take the Phoenix Suns in seven games. Now, this series comes down to the availability of Chris Paul and Kawhi Leonard because those are the superstars for both teams. And if neither team has that superstar, it's going to come down to secondary scoring. I like Devin Booker more than I do Paul George, so I'm taking the Suns to win in seven games because I think Chris Paul comes back before Kawhi Leonard does. But game one, of course, both teams missing their star players. It was the battle of the other star players. That would be Paul George and Devin Booker. And holy smokes, Devin Booker showed out. In game one, he had a 40-point, 13-rebound, 11-assist triple-double to lead the Suns to a 120-114 game one victory. And then on the other side of things, Paul George, not too shabby, had 34 points for the Clippers. But Phoenix took game one, so you fast-forward to game two. Of course, you have Kawhi Leonard and Chris Paul both 
out for this one again. This game went back and forth, and it was actually one of the better playoff games we've seen all year. So the Clippers were up by one point with just under eight seconds left. And Paul George, who is an 85% free throw shooter, was at the line for two shots. He ended up missing both free throws to give the ball back to Phoenix. Now, Phoenix took it down the floor. They missed their actual first shot, but the ball went off of uh, Los Angeles out of bounds, so Phoenix got it back with just over a second left. So your inbound pass, Jay Crowder threw an absolutely beautiful lob pass to DeAndre Ayton, who threw the slam dunk in. Play took like .2 seconds, but it did not leave enough time for anything uh, else. So the Clippers ran out of time. The Suns won the game 104-103 to take a 2-0 series lead. For the, for the Suns, Cameron Payne, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton all had over 20 points, while Paul George was the only Clipper over 20 points. So big difference in that one. Huge effort from the Suns. So you look at game three, shifted back to L.A., and the Clippers answered the bell in this one. Phoenix got Chris Paul back into the lineup, but it wasn't as if they really, I guess, truly had missed him. I mean, they did, right? But uh, their performance would not indicate that they did. But uh, So Chris Paul came back for the Suns. Paul George went on a rampage. Uh, he had 27 points, 15 rebounds. Clippers ended up winning 106-92 to bring the series within a game. On the Phoenix side of things, your problem was your scoring. Uh, You only scored 92 points, but your leading scorer was DeAndre Ayton with 18 points. Both Devin Booker and Chris Paul only had 15 points apiece. That is not going to get it done. So as of this recording, Phoenix leads the series two games to one. So I predicted the Suns and six, or Suns and seven rather, we'll see if that comes true, but In the Eastern Conference, Milwaukee versus Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta's been the Cinderella story of the NBA playoffs thus far. And Trey Young has blossomed into an absolute superstar in this league. Uh, Top 10 player in the league. I think you can safely put him in there. But I think the Atlanta Cinderella story ends in the conference finals. Uh, I'm I'm a believer in Trey Young, but I think the Bucs have too much depth to uh for for the Hawks to overcome really. So uh game 1 of this series is the only game that's been played up to this point as of this recording. And it was a great start to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um it was basically a battle of the two superstars, you know, playing on each side. Uh Atlanta came out with a 116 to 113 victory, but Trey Young, as we talked about over and over again, just another monster night. He had 48 points, 11 assists, which made Trey Young the youngest player ever to record 40 points and 10 assists in a conference finals game uh, in NBA history, which is pretty substantial. And then on the other side, Giannis Antetokounmpo, he did what Giannis Antetokounmpo does, which is 34 points and 12 rebounds. Again, just another ho-hum performance. Now, Drew Holiday for the Bucks, just a monster game. 33 points, 10 assists. He really was probably more so the MVP in this game than Giannis uh, because we expect Giannis to get that. We do not expect Drew Holiday to drop 33 and 10. 
but he did. Uh, it was not the outcome that the Bucks wanted. The Hawks were still able to hold off those performances, but um, as of this recording, again, Atlanta leads that series one game to nothing, so we'll have a, a recap of the next several games in each conference finals and uh, probably have a preview of the NBA finals on next week's episode, depending on how these series turn out. But either way, it's looking like a good, good NBA finals is in the store for us either way. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball, just do a quick standings update there in the MLB. And uh, we are roughly 75-ish games. I think every team's played around 75 games. So we are approaching the halfway point of the Major League Baseball season. Not quite there at the moment, but uh, by next week's episode, we will officially be at the halfway point of the MLB season. But for now, let's just get into it. The National League East start off there. New York Mets are still in charge at 38 and 31. Although the Washington Nationals are second at 36 and 36. They've been on a rampage. They've won five in a row, nine out of their last 10. They're just three and a half games back of the Mets. The Philadelphia Phillies are 34 and 37. They've uh, lost three in a row. The Atlanta Braves continue to slide down those standings in the NL East. They're 35 and 39. And the Miami Marlins are 31 and 43. They've only won twice in their last 10. I don't believe them to be any real threat to the playoffs like they were last year. But in the National League Central, Milwaukee Brewers still up top there, 42 and 33. They are just a half a game in front of the Chicago Cubs at 41 and 33. Now, as it sits right now, as of this recording, the Chicago Cubs are in Los Angeles leading the Dodgers right now by a score of 3 to nothing. So they may pull even with the Brewers here shortly. But um, the Cincinnati Reds are 37 and 36. Four games back of the Brewers, three and a half games back of the Cubs. Um, they have a good team. It's just... Um, can they can they get it all together pitching wise too to to catch up to the Cubs and Brewers? We'll see. Uh the St. Louis Cardinals, 36 and 39. They've lost four games in a row. Pittsburgh Pirates, 27 and 46. Again, just uh not really in contention for anything this year. Now the National League West continues to be the best division in baseball. They have three three teams over 40 wins, which is, uh, well, three teams over 45 wins, which is the only uh, division in baseball that can say that. Well, actually, 44 wins, we'll say. First place is San Francisco Giants, 48 and 26. They've won eight out of their last 10. They just seem to be uh, every bit as legit as the standings would indicate. Uh, they have been in first these last several weeks, several episodes. We've talked about it. The Giants have been in first. They just continue to prove that they're even more legit than really I think anybody's giving them credit for. The Los Angeles Dodgers are in second place at 44-30. and 30. They've actually lost three in a row, but they have passed the San Diego Padres, who are third place at 45-32. and 32. Padres are just a half game back of the Dodgers, four and a half games back of the Giants. Now the Padres, they've won seven games in a row, seven out of their last ten. So they're moving in the right direction, but 
those three teams are very good. I think all three of those teams will be playoff teams uh, come September. And uh, the Colorado Rockies are 31-44. and 44. Not really a threat. Um, and then the Arizona Diamondbacks. They are the worst team in baseball um, record-wise and eye test-wise. They're 21-55. and 55. They've only won once in their last 10. In fact, they uh, last week we talked about how they tied the record for 22 straight road losses. Well, this past week they actually set the record for most road losses in a row with 23. Their last road win uh, at the time was Madison Bumgarner's seven-inning quote-unquote no-hitter that didn't count as a no-hitter. So they actually lost 17 games in a row uh, before winning. And in that stretch, they went 5-40 and 40 in 45 games, which is just absolutely horrid. They are the worst team in the league by a mile. Now in the American League, American League East, the Tampa Bay Rays are 45-31. and 31. They're pretty damn good. Um, I thought they would have slipped by now, but they're not. Uh, they actually called up their 20-year-old prospect, Wander Franco, this past week. Now, Wander Franco, he plays shortstop. He was born in the year 2001, which makes him the first Major League Baseball player ever to appear in the big leagues uh, being born in 2001, which is outrageous because uh, that just makes me feel old. Uh, and all he did in his first game was draw a pretty good walk and then come out and hit a three-run home run to tie the game. So uh, Franco is looking every bit of the number one prospect that uh, he is purported to be. But the Boston Red Sox, they're second in the AL East, just a half game back of those Rays at 44-31. and 31. The New York Yankees are third at 40-34. and 34. They've won seven out of their last ten. <clears throat> they're three and a half games back of the Red Sox, four games back of the Rays. Now, the Yankees... This past week, last weekend, they turned their third triple play of the season, which is just absolutely outrageous. Um, triple plays are hard to come by, but the Yankees have had three of them thus far in the first 70, uh, 70 games, really, because it happened last weekend. So in the first 70 games, they turned three triple plays. Fourth place in the AL East, the Toronto Blue Jays at 38 and 35. Um, they've won five games in a row, actually, to be at that spot. Uh, I think they're just as legit contenders as the Yankees and the Red Sox. They have triple crown front runner Vlad Guerrero Jr. leading the charge there. And then the Baltimore Orioles, last place in the AL East at 23-52. and 52. They've only won once in their last 10. They've lost six in a row. They're going to compete with the Diamondbacks for worst record in baseball. Now, in the American League Central, the Chicago White Sox. Again, this is probably the fourth week in a row that the White Sox have been atop the AL Central. They're looking pretty good. 44-30 and 30 is their record. Second place is the Cleveland Indians, 41-31. and 31. They're two games back of Chicago. They've won seven out of their last ten, so they're going in the right direction. The Kansas City Royals are 33-40. and 40. Detroit Tigers, 32-43. and 43. And the Minnesota Twins, 31-43. and 43. They seem to just be stuck in that last place spot, uh, which is surprising because they have decent pitching and a decent lineup, more so than Detroit. 
uh, frankly, in Kansas City. So uh, we'll see if the Twins can can get out of that last place spot, but they've been kind of camped out there these last three or four weeks as well. But over in the American League West, the Houston Astros, they're 47-28. and 28. They've passed the Oakland A's. They have won 11 games in a row. Astros are playing really good baseball right now. Uh, would not want to play them. Winners of 11 in a row, just looking like the uh, Astros from a couple years ago. Those Oakland A's that I just mentioned, they're second. They're two games back at Houston. They're 46 and 31. The Seattle Mariners are third place. They've kind of been stuck in third place there. They're 39 and 37. They've actually won eight out of their last 10 games, but they're eight and a half games back of the Astros. Fourth place is the Los Angeles Angels. They're 36 and 38. They've lost three in a row. But they do have Shohei Otani, who just continues to amaze us, both uh, as a hitter, smashing home runs. He's committed to the home run derby already. And then, of course, as a pitcher as well. And then last place in the American League West, my Texas Rangers, 27-48. and 48, 20 games back of the Astros. They've only won twice in their last 10 games. It's been painful this year to be a Texas Rangers fan, but... Uh, at least they are not the worst team in baseball. So they got that going for them. But like I said, next week's episode will be halfway through the regular season uh, in Major League Baseball. So we'll do another standings update and uh, get some more news regarding the All-Star game uh, in that episode. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. And that is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And we'll start off in the National Football League. Some interesting news out of the NFL. They announced this week that they are going to begin the bid process for cities to host the annual NFL scouting combine that takes place every spring before the NFL draft. And that's going to begin in 2023, so a couple years from now. Uh, The combine has been held in Indianapolis, Indiana, every year since 1987 with Uh, I guess last year being the exception, only the medical portion was held there, of course, due to the pandemic. They didn't work out there. Every college had their pro days. But since 1987, with the exception of that weird COVID year, the NFL Combine's been in Indy. And the 2022 NFL Combine is scheduled to be in Indianapolis as well. But starting in 2023, uh, Indianapolis is going to have some competition. Of course, Indy is expected to make a bid to continue to host the event, but uh, other cities will begin bidding for that spot. Now, all of the NFL teams have the opportunity to let the NFL know whether they are interested in hosting the combine or the draft or uh, any Super Bowls or anything like that. So uh, I'm sure the NFL is going to get some inquiries, certainly for the combine, because that is quite the spectacle for uh, teams and scouts. But this whole thing really is a result of the NFL's continued push to evolve its um, marquee events. And the success of the NFL so far in rotating the location of the NFL draft here in the last few years is really a big part of why they are motivated to try and do the same thing with the Combine. So over the last, you know, 
five or so drafts, it's been in a different city every year instead of, you know, New York, like it always was. And I think that's had really good success. You get good turnouts in the draft and you get to see some neat cities along the way. So I think that'll work for the combine too. I I don't see who would be opposed to hosting the combine. You know, um, you get the uh, prospects to use your facilities and uh, I think that's interesting. I would love for Dallas to get it because I would I would love to uh, either watch or, you know, do do what I could to be a part of the spectator portion of the NFL Combine if it ever came down here. But move on to the National Basketball Association. A couple of big pieces of news out of the NBA this past week, aside from the playoffs, of course. There was a big trade that went down that involved the Boston Celtics and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Well, the Celtics, they traded Kemba Walker, the 16th overall pick in this year's draft, and a second-round pick in the 2025 draft to the Oklahoma City Thunder in exchange for Al Horford, Moses Brown, and a second-round pick in the 2023 draft. This trade gives the Oklahoma City Thunder 18, yes, count them, 18 first-round picks over the next seven drafts. That is just outrageous. That means they have more than two first-round picks every year for the next seven drafts. That's enough for damn near three basketball teams worth of first-round picks that the Thunder have. So talk about a rebuild. Uh, That is clearly what is going on there in Oklahoma City. But a couple of big coaching announcements. The first one is a is a vacancy and my Dallas Mavericks uh, head coach Rick Carlisle informed the Mavericks this past week that he is not going to be returning to the Mavericks this next season and this came just a couple days after general manager Donnie Nelson was relieved of his duties as general manager this all stemmed from some internal uh, conflict basically involving a, a stats guy who was getting too much input on decisions that were being made in the game. He's an analytics guy, and he was acting like he was an assistant coach or the head coach, basically bossing Carlisle around and led to some player player unhappiness and and coach unhappiness, and now here we are. The Mavs have lost their general manager and their head coach all in a matter of a couple days. So the Mavericks right now are in complete shambles, which is not a good time because they are about to – Uh, sign Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic just became eligible to sign a rookie max contract extension. I still think he's still got maybe two years left on his initial deal or one year for sure but because he finished first team all NBA he's still he's eligible now to receive a rookie max contract extension which would be north of 200 million dollars. So we'll see if he even wants to sign that damn thing after this you know puppet show that the Mavs have been putting on. But Rick Carlisle is going to be missed. Uh, It it is not his fault that the Mavericks uh, lost in the first round again. He, of course, took the Mavericks to an NBA championship back in 2011. They have not made it past the first round of the playoffs since then. So that's been 10 years since the Mavs have been any kind of relevant in the playoffs. Carlisle actually had two years left on his contract, and he did mention on his way out that this departure is strictly his doing and not... Uh, the teams. But from that vacancy over to a coaching hiring, the Boston Celtics, they have found their new head coach. 
They announced that they are hiring Brooklyn Nets assistant coach Ime Udoka to be their new head coach. Now, prior to coaching as an assistant in Brooklyn, Udoka was actually an assistant coach under Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs for seven seasons. After that, he went to the Philadelphia 76ers and became an assistant coach under Brett Brown. Also under his resume, uh, Ime Udoka has coached Team USA men's basketball in the 2019 FIBA World Cup. So uh, on that 2019 FIBA World Cup team were current Boston Celtics players Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart. So they all got to work with Udoka, and they all voiced strong recommendations to hire Udoka as their their current head coach. So that is exactly what happened. Uh, they endorsed him. They wanted him. And when your star player wants a specific guy, you get said specific guy. So that is precisely why Ime Udoka is now the head coach of the Boston Celtics. But the biggest news out of the NBA came in the form of the NBA draft lottery, which was conducted on Tuesday this past week. So here are the results for the lottery, the draft lottery. And this is only the top 14 picks in the NBA draft, which will be next month. The 14th pick belongs to the Golden State Warriors. 13th pick belongs to the Indiana Pacers. 12th pick, San Antonio Spurs. 11th pick, Charlotte Hornets. 10th pick, New Orleans Pelicans. 9th pick, Sacramento Kings. 8th pick, Orlando Magic. 7th pick, Golden State Warriors. 6th pick, Oklahoma City Thunder. 5th pick, Orlando Magic. 4th pick, Toronto Raptors. 3rd pick, Cleveland Cavaliers. 2nd pick, Houston Rockets. And the first overall pick belongs to the Detroit Pistons. Now you'll notice that the Golden State Warriors have two picks, 14th and 7th, and the Orlando Magic also have two picks, 5th and 8th. Uh, so now we already talked about the Oklahoma City Thunder. They acquired Boston's 16th overall pick, and they also have the 6th overall pick. So there's a lot of teams in this upcoming draft that have multiple first-round picks. So that'll be interesting to see how that turns out. We're still a little over a month away from the draft process uh, taking place. But we'll move on to the NCAA. Now, I came across an interesting graphic on Fox Sports. It listed the top 10 teams that are the most followed college teams on the Fox Sports app. Now, this is just generic. It's not specific to any one sport like football or basketball. This is just simply generic. The top 10 colleges that are the most followed on the Fox Sports app. Number 10, Notre Dame. Number 9, Oklahoma. Number 8, Nebraska. Number 7, Texas. Number 6, Alabama. Number 5 is Michigan State. Number 4 is Iowa. Number three, Wisconsin. Number two is Michigan. And number one is Ohio State. That I found that super interesting. You got six Big Ten teams and only one SEC team. And Clemson wasn't anywhere on there, which I thought was almost fraudulent. Uh, I don't understand how programs that haven't been relevant in years uh, are, are in that, like Nebraska. 
they have been absolute trash for the better part of the last, well, decade probably, really. Um, the rest of those teams are all relevant. You know, Michigan State, not so much anymore, but uh, they've had some a few good bowl appearances here lately. But, uh, yeah, very surprising. Six out of those top ten most followed teams are Big Ten teams and only one SEC team. I figured it would have been the opposite. I figured SEC would have had more than any other conference, but that's not the case. Now, also on Fox Sports, another graphic I came across was uh, dealing with cover athletes for video games. Of course, last week I mentioned the Madden 22 cover athlete is split between Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. Well, Fox Sports also posted a list of the schools with both a Madden and NCAA football cover athlete since the year 2000. There's eight schools that have had both an NCAA football cover athlete back before that video game stopped being made and a Madden cover athlete. And those schools are Alabama, Michigan, USC, Texas, Oklahoma State, Arkansas, Texas Tech and Pitt. So interesting. You see a few of those schools uh, are also some of the top 10 schools that are being followed on the Fox Sports app. But I just thought that was interesting. Uh, No other noteworthy news on that. I just figured that that would be uh, an interesting thing to bring up. But the biggest noteworthy piece of uh, information from the NCAA this week came in the form of a Supreme Court ruling that Uh, basically said that the uh, NCAA's limits on the education-related benefits that colleges can offer athletes who play Division I basketball or football cannot be enforced. And so this ruling basically has positive effects on the name, image, and likeness compensation bill that has already previously been proposed in the government. And under the current NCAA rules, basically students cannot be paid and the scholarship money that colleges offer is capped at the cost of it, uh, of attending the school. So they're not allowed to offer them anything more than basically a scholarship to cover the costs of their uh, tuition. Now, the NCAA had defended its rules uh, to preserve the amateur nature of college sports, but there was a group of athletes who brought a case against the NCAA in this ruling and basically said that the NCAA's rules on this education-related compensation were unfair and they violated the antitrust laws designed to promote competition. And so the Supreme Court ruled in favor of that, of those group of athletes, uh, which is good because, again, I've, I've said before when I've mentioned it on previous episodes, the name, image, and likeness thing, yeah, I don't think college athletes should get paid to be an athlete by itself. However, if they sell their jerseys or if they sign autographs, they ought to be able to make money off of, off of their name, image, and likeness. So I don't see an issue with that. I think, you know, America's all about living the American dream and trying to be as prosperous as possible. So as long as the, the schools aren't paying them a salary to play because they're getting a free education, then I think the athletes should be free to make money on whatever extracurricular uh, items that they Uh, have their name on. So uh, interesting development there. That is certainly good news for the name, image, and likeness bill. And we'll have to continue to see how that moves along here in the court proceeding. But um, 
yeah, that is, uh, that's an interesting topic there, but that is going to wrap up the 45th episode of the Sports Island podcast. Again, this was the one-year anniversary episode, so thank you all for being a part of the show and taking time out to listen to it and continue to listen to it over the course of this past year. It means a lot to me, and I hope you enjoy the information that you guys get from this podcast. But we got another busy week. The conference finals uh, in the NHL are going to be wrapping up. We'll have a Stanley Cup final to preview on next week's episode. And uh, the NBA conference finals should be more than halfway over by next week's episode. So we'll be kind of talking about an NBA finals as well. So until then, stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.